Thank you for joining Politics and Media 101, hosted by Justin Higgins and myself, John Gunnison. Our conversation today is with Mr. Richard Helby, an entrepreneur and philanthropist who is host of the Common Bridge podcast and author of its accompanying blog. This discussion focuses on the problem of gun proliferation in the United States. In the two days since this conversation was recorded, there have been 172 publicly recorded shootings in the United States, killing 70 people and injuring 146 others. A second part of our conversation with Mr. Helpy will be released next week. Today, we're here with Richard Helpy of The Common Bridge, which delivers fiercely nonpartisan policy-oriented content through podcasts, YouTube, and Substack, and it's now entering its fourth season. I've actually been a guest on the show twice now, and we've had great conversations. Uh, In another lifetime, Richard was an entrepreneur focused on information technology, healthcare, and a whole host of other things, and most near and dear to Rich's heart is his philanthropic work. So, Rich, we're going to basically get into few policy discussions and also the state of politics and what you see going on with America, both the Democrats, Republicans, maybe some media. But I wanted to start off with a quick discussion on guns because you so graciously had me on your show after the terrible massacre of Uvalde. I I, want to say it was a day or two after, so emotions were raw and we were debating what type of solutions we should have moving forward. And Having worked in policy, I was very pessimistic that anything was going to get done, and uh, I was wrong. Your optimism wound up being more spot on, and there was some minor uh, legislation that got through. So I guess to start, before we get into other solutions, what is your take on the legislation that passed, and how should we view this as Americans? Well, we should view it, first of all, that perhaps the political system worked um, as you know, Winston Churchill said about Americans, that Americans will do the right thing uh, after we've tried absolutely everything else. But I, I don't think it really gets to the core of the problem. And my background in software and entrepreneurship, I always like to do what I call backtesting something and saying, if these policies were in place, what carnage could have been avoided? What we have right now that's driving uh, gun violence, first of all, two-thirds of gun deaths in America, and it's been this way for years, have been suicides. And so suicides, clearly, it's it's a mental health issue that someone reaches that point in their depression and their despair that they decide to take their own life. And, you know, frankly, you know, a gun's a pretty efficient way to do that. And And so that's something that we need to focus on is what can we do about mental health where people have resources and won't be driven to that point. And then we we look to the to the next level is that we have at certain levels in the culture violence as a way of solving a dispute. Um, and again, the consequences of introducing a firearm into that situation um, is deadly. The gun most often used in gun violence is a semi-automatic handgun. Okay, they're not assault rifles. They're not shotguns. They are semi-automatic handguns. Um, And and in fact, some of the statistics I've seen that rifle deaths are lower than deaths just by beating someone with their hands or feet. So, you know, we do need to keep the firearms out of the hands of people that shouldn't have them. You know, with 300 million guns in the United States, 
15 million-ish would be defined as assault weapons. I don't think we're going to be able to bring that out of our out of circulation, but I think there's a lot of things we can do about keeping them out of the hands of people that shouldn't have them. So, Rich, I was not expecting that I was going to agree as thoroughly with what you've just said, because when I have conversations about guns with Americans, my fellow Americans, I often end up disagreeing. I found that there are presumptions built into the American mindset about gun ownership that are deeply flawed. The biggest one of those, of course, is the idea that having a gun keeps you safe, right? I think that there's lots of polling data that shows that this is the biggest reason why Americans do buy guns. And I think two thirds of people who own guns said that that was the primary reason that they bought them. And I think a lot of what you've just said uh, kind of reiterates uh, something that I often say when I'm having this conversation. It's the thing that we really need to challenge because it's not true. Uh, Having a gun doesn't make you safe. It makes you much less safe. Uh, People who own guns are much more likely to become the victims of gun violence, even compared to their own neighbors when you control for lots of other factors. Well, I I think I've read some of those stats and I don't think I agree with them uh, because there's things that can't be captured. So if someone uses a gun for a deterrent and doesn't discharge the weapon, it's never tracked any place um, that I can personally tell you lots of neighborhoods that I know of. There's no home break-ins because everybody is armed and, and nobody would do that with a hardened target. Um, and it's hard to capture uh, the points where, you know, a, a firearm is used to bring down a an armed assailant. I mean, that does happen statistically. That's not an everyday occurrence, perhaps, but uh, firearms um, are a deterrent effect, and that's really hard to capture. Um, they're also, uh, when you think about uh, the elderly and and the and females and smaller frame people, um, at times it's a great equalizer. Um, again, it's a tool like anything else, and the tool in the wrong hands, used the wrong way, is is tragic consequences. And so keeping that firearm away from people that shouldn't have them. So by way of example, in the back testing on the gun bill that did did pass, we're going to be able to search the juvenile records and the juvenile mental health records of these young, very young people that are going out and buying very powerful weapons. I don't know a single person that thinks an 18-year-old walking into a gun store buying a semi-automatic rifle and lots of magazines and a thousand rounds of ammo is a great idea. Okay. It as their first gun purchase, it just doesn't make any sense to anybody. So if you go down to the Parkland shooting, the perpetrator of that was tracked as an antisocial person, you know, from elementary school on multiple run-ins with uh, school authorities, with the law passed on, turned 18, went to purchase a gun. What's in the background check? Guess what? There's nothing there. Why? He just turned 18. There hasn't been time for anything to accrue. And it it was with deadly consequences. And so putting something in place, like even raising the age to 21, I think does help. That does that. But I don't think that goes far enough. Guns need to be handled safely. They need to be used properly and they need to be stored properly. 
And when you look at some of the accidental deaths, the um, things that are very well publicized, kid gets a hold of a gun, it's because people are being stupid. Um, you know, the guy that leaves his pistol in his nightstand drawer, the odds of that being found by someone that shouldn't have it versus him using it for home protection, um, it, it, the risk reward just isn't there. And there are firearm safes today that you can open with your fingertips. There are lots of different methods for keeping a firearm secure and out of sight and readily accessible if you need to, to use it. And that should be part of any legislation. What are the requirements for storage? I think I probably disagree with some of what you've said. I mean, certainly I would probably disagree with your assessment of the valuable deterrent effect of gun possession. I think that uh, more often we might find that the possession or the presence of a gun in a dispute or in a criminal incident is more escalatory than it is deterrent. Another thing is when you've talked about our ambitions to screen dangerous people, uh, the examples you gave were on an individual level. So we can identify a person, particularly a young person, who has committed certain juvenile offenses, and that person, as you suggest, should be prevented from purchasing a gun. But I mean, you also have to consider the other problem that you raised, the problem of storage and how that interacts with this um, ambition to screen out individuals. Because if the family members of a potentially dangerous or unwell person are able to possess a weapon, and we know that according to data from Johns Hopkins, more than half, the majority of gun owners in the United States do not safely store and contain their weapons. I mean, you've got this trickle-down effect of gun possession where someone owning it might lead to their family member who is unwell, dangerous, ending up in possession. So generally, what we've got is a problem of proliferation, really. And uh, Rich, in your discourse here, you've used a phrase a couple times that I would like to investigate. Uh, uh, you said people who should not have guns should be prevented from having them. And I, I'm wondering how you would define that category, because I imagine that I would define it, it perhaps even more strictly than you would. I, I think that almost nobody really should have a gun. And I'm wondering who you think should have a gun. Well, it, it doesn't matter who I think should have a gun. All right, just like I don't dictate other people's ownership of anything. And again, with over 300 million guns in private hands, um, most of them aren't causing any problems. Uh, the people I know that are gun owners aren't causing problems. doesn't bother me a bit uh, that they own firearms. And the way I could punctuate uh, your claim that criminals aren't deterred by guns, I can guarantee you that they are. They, they always are going to pick the softer target. And they, they don't want to go into a place where they could be met with harm. So there's two ways you can keep that separation between a, a firearm and someone that shouldn't have it. One is that reactive way. Let's try to find out, find people that shouldn't have it and try to put up barriers, which is what I think the recent gun bill has attempted to do. Expanding background check, uh, red flag laws, ending the boyfriend loophole, additional funding for mental health and such. That's a way. Um, another way, and I floated this idea, and I think it would pass Second Amendment uh, rigor that I call graduated licensing. And the way that I think about it is this. If you're wanting to learn to drive a car, 
and you're 16 years old, you don't get that license and jump into the driver's seat of a semi-truck, all right? You're going to be very dangerous with that semi-truck. In fact, most states now have graduated licensing for young drivers. I've actually saw an app for one that measured the young driver's amount of time they can drive by them. They have to drive solo. They have to drive so many hours at night. They have to have so many hours under supervision before they're given greater and greater uh, privileges with driving. Um, airplane pilots the same way. You, you get your first license. You can fly in the daytime with a single engine airplane with fixed gear, and that's all you can fly. And you've got to have more testing, more training, more checkout by um, instructors before you can fly the next complicated airplane. The driver's license are at a state level. The airplanes is FAA. It's a federal, but we also do that in medical practice. So we're talking about this graduated licensing concept. At which point in the phased licensing would someone in this system be permitted to purchase a handgun? Well, I would say that the handgun would be, um, first thing, you, you have to be an adult. You have to have a, a class. You have to pass a, a written test on the proper use of the, of the gun, uh, the proper storage of the gun, go to a range, demonstrate you can use it. And then it's limited. So it would be limited in uh, capacity. Like the way I would do it would be a, a revolver, six or seven shots, and of, uh, below a certain caliber. And then perhaps a, a hunting rifle with up to three rounds under supervision. And of course, shotguns for um, skeet and, and target practice. And with enough time owning that gun, demonstrating that you know how to use it properly, demonstrating you know how to store it right, you can come in and get more classes, be tested again, and now maybe you move up to a semi-automatic handgun. Okay, maybe you move up to a more um, powerful rifle. But in each step, you're being evaluated by an instructor, and you're going out on a range and showing that you know how to use it. And at some point, just like with, with airplanes, that there is a medical evaluation. All right, are you? is it good for you to have these kind of weapons at your disposal? And then, and, and again, moving up the chain until you can own anything that is legal to own, um, which of course would exclude machine guns. It would exclude bazookas. It would exclude, you know, rocket grenade launchers and things. Um, but it, it would not preclude any, anybody to want to challenge this on a second amendment would have to say that they're, they're being prohibited from getting a firearm, and you're not being prohibited from getting a firearm. You can get it as you demonstrate that you're not going to be a threat to other people with it. And I, I think the point that you make is a good one about it falling into other hands. Um, you know, that is something, again, that comes with that education, with that testing, with that storage. Because right now, the background check, if you, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the form for it, it's nine questions. And you know what one of the questions is? Are you a fugitive from justice? Okay, <laughs> that's one of the nine questions. I mean, who answers yes to that? Yeah, I mean, certainly the system that you're proposing would be a significant improvement to what we've got right now. But I would still kind of question, I mean, you've outlined the excluded category of weapons, I mean, machine guns and so on. I mean, 
when we're talking about an item with as little social value and as much social danger as a handgun, I mean, in your opinion, my question kind of remains why something of that nature would not be in the excluded category. If the answer is we're concerned about the Second Amendment issue, I mean, certainly we have to at least acknowledge that we are dealing um, in a current status quo, a current reality that is not the historical norm for our interpretation and understanding of the Second Amendment and is not one that is endorsed uh, by the majority of uh, legal scholars, uh, historical analysts. Uh, we're in a very strange and distorted sort of funhouse mirror in the post-Heller America. And anytime we talk about Second Amendment protections, I just want to make sure that we're not baking that presumption into the way that we talk about this issue. Because a big part of the problem is this cultural problem that we've kind of been acknowledging. I mean, people's misunderstanding of how guns have historically been used in the United States, people's misunderstanding of the value that comes from owning a gun, because as we know, factually, guns make people less safe rather than more safe. And this misunderstanding of guns is such a big part of the problem. Really, Rich, the biggest issue is this issue of proliferation. Um, we've got hundreds of millions of guns circulating in the country. I want to be real clear. I disagree with you empirically. A firearm is a deterrent. Okay, you know the, the stats on the Kennesaw, Georgia, and it it is the wrong people having it and the cultural problem of violence of any type as a means of solving a dispute. And so if you look at all these gun bans, okay, you're you're not going to go into the city of Chicago and that's and say problem solved. All right. What we have there is we have a cultural issue of people inappropriately using firearms. Okay. They're using them to solve a dispute. They're using them wantonly. They're not, you know, they're hitting innocent people. That's the problem we need to get after. Okay. And, and to me, that's that th there are things we can do on a social level to help people understand that that violence, you might think you're proving your manhood that day and, and you're going to end up spending 15 or 20 years in a maximum security prison. It's not a good place to be. And how do we help guide people away from that violence as a solution? Rich, I mean, you're talking about social attitudes about gun usage and gun ownership. And that's really what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is that we need to directly challenge these mistaken presumptions that people have about the value of gun ownership. And uh, at the very core of that is this, again, this idea that guns keep you safe. Let me ask you this, John. What city do you live in? I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Cambridge, Massachusetts, pretty safe town. Indeed. And I used to live in a place that was even safer where there were no guns available at all, uh, that no one had any right to own a gun and no one did. And there were no homicides any year. Where is that? This was in the United Arab Emirates in Abu Dhabi. So I've experienced life without guns and it's much safer. <laughs> there are no homicides. There are places like that culturally that don't have violence as a means of settling um, issues. But look, Cambridge, Massachusetts, probably very, very little use to, uh, for a gun as a means of protection. All right. And I mean, trying to get a safe shot off in that place, probably not very good. Probably in the event of a home invasion or whatever, police response is probably pretty good, probably better than what you could do on your own. All right. Grant you that. Cambridge, Massachusetts, not an issue. You get to places, though, there's a lot of America where the first responders are 30 and 45 minutes away. You, you, you don't, you're not getting a police response that's going to be effective at all. It's a, a different world. And this is where, our, where we have so much problems in politics 
is that we have these enclaves that think the rest of the country is like them. And we're not. And and one of the things that I've taken note of um, on my program, The Common Bridge, is that oftentimes we're speaking from the center of the country, the places that grow things, the places that make things, the places where we have phenomenal water resources. And the life is different. And so there are people that wouldn't understand what it's like for you to feel real safe and secure in Cambridge, Mass. And there would be people that could only imagine what it would be like to be in the United Arab Emirates. And you would feel as out of place in the, in the type of places you're trying to regulate as they would in Cambridge. I'd like to just kind of introduce for you, for the audience, that my experiences of the range of human safety and public safety are quite broad. So I've spent quite a bit of time and have had experiences in the places that are statistically the safest places on earth, places like Doha, Qatar, Abu Dhabi, the United Arab Emirates, and so on. I've also had a lot of personal experience in places that are among the most dangerous, places like Delhi, India, places like Nairobi in Kenya, places like Johannesburg in South Africa. I don't know if the kind of criticism about living in a bubble uh, is one that applies to me very much on this particular topic, because my experiences of the variety of public safety uh, pretty much span from top to bottom. I would say, though, that, again, I think that you might be overlooking certain factors and your own presumptions of how guns uh, impact social environments. The idea that a gun uh, can be used effectively as a deterrent and the idea that guns uh, might keep people safe and that they might uh, take down an armed assailant, I think are very much influenced by media depictions of guns, which depict guns in this very positive way. Uh, Hollywood movies often and television shows often show people using guns to commit acts of heroism. This is incredibly rare in real life, but something that is quite common that I think hasn't been acknowledged at any point in this conversation, which explains a lot of the statistics that show that households with guns are so much more unsafe, is the domestic violence component. I mean, like I said, we have data that shows that houses that have guns in them are three times more likely to see a homicide than comparable houses in the same neighborhoods that don't have guns. And a big reason for that is because of the high incidence of domestic violence by gun owners. I think it's something over 80%, and I've got the data with me here, 84% of the victims in uh, these domestic homicides are female. If you live in a household that has a gun, you are seven times more likely to be attacked by your partner than in a household without a gun. And I think that this is the factor that we've kind of been ignoring as we're talking about this. I mean, we're making these presumptions of what life is like based on television shows and movies where guns are used to protect people. When in reality, comparable houses that do and don't have guns, the ones that have guns are so much more unsafe because the people in the house are using them against the other people in the house. All right. So first of all, let me say this about the... Uh, depictions in Hollywood, um, you know, TVs and, and movies, you and I are in 100% agreement. I cringe at the amount of inappropriate and unsafe gun usage that are in movies and the unrealistic way that they're depicted versus the horrors of a gunshot wound. It's been antiseptic since the beginning of uh, film, and they're a little bit more graphic now, but nothing nothing like reality. And also, if you look at the psychological part in entertainment use of guns, the gun's fired, the, the person drops, and that's the end of it. 
that's only the beginning of the trauma uh, of a person that's injured or um, dies from a gunshot wound. Um, it's all it's it's a person that doesn't die from it um, is is traumatized. A person that even witnesses it is traumatized and for life because of the unspeakable violence that it goes into. Um, and then you also the if you notice that in Hollywood depictions, bad guys are really bad shots. They're heavily armed and bullets are pinging all around. But the uh, hero running away fires one shot uh, over his or her shoulder that goes through four bad guys and, uh, um, you know, drops drops them all with a single bullet. It's completely unrealistic. And that is not how firearms should be used. And when you see um, all the depictions of gun usage with the actors having their finger inside the trigger guard, which is like the worst thing to do. And you, you look at what happened on the, the set um, with the tragedy with uh, Alec Baldwin, the, a lot of blame goes at the, the, the feet of the entertainment industry. And one of the things that I proposed was this, don't tell people how to make movies, but anytime you have a firearm in there, every time it's discharged and discharged inappropriately, there's a tax. And we collect that tax and use that for mental health services, right? Because we, we want less of that, not more of it. And, I, and in terms of domestic violence, a person that will commit d- domestic violence will t- take the weapon at hand. And when a person is beaten with hands or feet, they may or may not report that. If they're struck with a blunt instrument, if they're not immobilized, they may or may not report that. That gun goes off, that's going to get reported and into the statistics. Something important has to be clarified here, though. If we're talking about how as someone who we think has a violent predisposition is likely to make use of whatever weapon is available, we also have to recognize why guns are a more dangerous category of available weapon than these other possibilities. Well, we're in agreement about that. Keep the gun out of the hands of that person. And that's why I'm saying, okay, in graduated licensing, all right, that there would be reviews. There would be firearms instructors talking to people and asking questions. Um, and they're, they're quite good at it. Um, let me give you a parallel. That's not an exact fit, um, but, but I was with an elderly neighbor um, yesterday uh, just found him, you know, just coming down in the garage. He had fallen and his wife was trying to get him to a medical facility. So I took him to a medical facility and getting him checked in. And, and they said, what happened? I said, well, he fell. And the first question was, were there, did it, was it witnessed? Okay. Did anybody see him fall? I'm like, oh, that's a great question. You know, maybe they thought something else had gone on. So I think if we get more screening, we slow down the way that firearms get into the population, that there is qualifications. Did you show that you've, you're able to handle it? Most gunners, gun owners that I know, and I've talked to a lot of them, don't have an issue with this because they already do it. They already safe store their weapons. Okay, They already make sure they get the training. They already make sure that they that they're of good mental and physical health. When they they get to the point where they're too old to safely operate, 
They surrender their weaponry. That's If we can codify that, we'll keep the firearms out of the hands of people because statistically, again, if we've got 300 million firearms, okay, and I think 45,000 gun deaths, there's a lot of guns that aren't doing any damage to anybody. So it's keeping it out of the wrong hands. And your point, of course, it's obviously it's a lot easier to shoot somebody than to stab them, of course. But we don't know how many people are threatened with a knife. We don't know how many people are threatened with a bat. We don't know how many people are threatened with uh, being punched in the face. All right. But we do know when guns are discharged. I've really been enjoying this discussion, but I've, I've, I haven't been quiet for 30 minutes of my life, never mind on a podcast. So I come in in between. I, I think that empirically people are less safe with guns, but I don't think we can ban them like John wants. I'm a little confused. So I, I think John's point is that ultimately the solution that you're proposing is good because the way that I take it, Rich, is it's like a red flag law on steroids. And I think it's a really good thing and better than anything that I've seen proposed by the left or the right because it increases scrutiny, increases oversight. It has a medical component, which is very, very important, but it also lets people still have legal firearms. So it passes constitutional muster and and you'd hope it would get political support. But my question is, I think to John's point, it's still not going to prevent those people who fly off the handle, who get enraged, you know, folks like that have an episode of road rage, right? But with domestic violence from getting those guns, it's going to slow them down. But ultimately, once they go through the graduated licensing process, they get that gun, they start beating their wife, that gun's still going to be there. So while it will help, I I can't imagine that it's going to help that much because like we've already mentioned, there are red flag laws. There are closing the boyfriend loophole. So how would these people be prevented from getting a gun when, you know, they haven't been doing anything illegal in the first place. The mental health screening is going to be minimal because we don't have enough psychiatrists or psychologists to begin with. So that's my question. Is there any concern that John's very valid points about these people reaching to their right in a fit of rage will still be able to do so? It's just going to take them a year or two longer? Look, a violent person is going to be a violent person, all right? There's no disagreement about that um, whatsoever. And the what I, I, I think the thing that's left out of this is called backtesting, okay? And what I proposed would have prevented Uvalde, would have prevented Parkland, would have prevented Boulder, okay? Would have prevented a person from getting that very powerful weapon on their first go-round. It would have required the gun shop to stop and ask, you're here to buy a firearm, wonderful, we want to make sure it's a good, safe experience. Class is next week, pass the class, demonstrate proficiency, now you get licensed for that first pistol. It slows down so there's more time for observation. If you remember the beginning of the comments that I made, I did talk specifically about that, about um, the mental health aspect of the suicides, all right? That that clearly is a need, two-thirds of the gun deaths because of suicide. Um, so we could solve two-thirds of the gun deaths theoretically with better mental health services. Um, I did talk also about the social aspect in places where violence as a means of solving a dispute that we need to get and give people better tools for dispute resolution other than shooting. And we need to get the 
the illegal firearms off the streets. And, and, and you know, the hopefully these red flag laws that are going in place and the boyfriend loophole closing will have some impact. But again, I look at what back testing, what I'm proposing with graduated licensing would cut down a lot of the gun deaths. There's a couple kind of contradictions that I'm noticing here. So first, specifically in regard to this domestic violence issue, we are proposing here a system that is a kind of screening system for people who are in violent or problematic relationships, but at the same time, continuing to reiterate um, as a way of trying to downplay the danger of guns in this scenario, we are reiterating again and again that there are unreported, underreported domestic violence incidents with hands, with knives, and so on. So it doesn't seem, Rich, as though you're very confident in our ability to identify and screen the escalating and introductory steps in these violent relationships very much. It doesn't seem to be very much confidence in that at all. Okay, well, let let, let me clarify then. Remember that the thesis is keeping the firearm away from the person who hasn't demonstrated that they're able to use it and store it safely, okay, so that they wouldn't have that firearm. Now, you can't do that with someone's hands, I don't think, that you would be be restricted. And and what I what I show you, look, if you look at airline, which by the way is Federal Aviation Administration, rarely do you see a pilot have a psychotic episode where they do something stupid with the airplane. All right, because they are going through a system very similar to this. And they're they're being observed by more senior pilots. They're being uh subjected to training. They have to show that they're current. They can't just, you know, fly once a year. They have to to demonstrate proficiency and they have to pass a medical. Now is the medical 100%? No, but all of these things has led us to some tremendous aviation safety and there's I don't think there's a reason why we can't do that with the fi- with firearms. I would agree with you very much that if guns were as rarely held and as few people qualified to possess them as were qualified to fly commercial planes, I would be very satisfied with that. If the size and pool of people and the proliferation of this problem was similar in scope to that of the number of people who can fly planes, I would be satisfied. There is one other aspect of this that I kind of just want to respond to before we put away. It's this issue of identifying the problem of people using violence as a mean to resolve disputes while simultaneously promoting it. So I agree with you. That is absolutely a social problem in our country and elsewhere in the world that people believe that violence is a correct way to solve a dispute. But at the same time as we're acknowledging that problem, we are saying that guns should be used effectively as a deterrent of crime and escalation. So we are, again, promoting this idea that guns are a, a useful way of solving a dispute. Right. One's, one's, a appropriate, one's an inappropriate use of a firearm. The other one's an appropriate use. But it, inherent in the idea that guns are deterrent is to say that they're useful that they are a good way of solving a dispute. I know from a uh, direct multiple personal experience that that, that that used properly, they're a great deterrent and they're great deterrent in particular communities and that the 
cherry pick data about that they have no deterrent value is just, you know, frankly, I just don't buy it. Okay. And that's just based on, on life experience and, and studying what statistics are available. So which, which communities are, which, which communities is it appropriate to use a gun to solve a dispute and which communities is it inappropriate to use a gun to solve? Well, no, no, not to solve a dispute. We no, no, no. Again, now you're, you're mixing things. I said as a deterrent. Yeah. That's solving a dispute. Yeah. No, 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 no. I mean, it's a gun as a threat. It's a, that's still solving a dispute though. That's, that's literally the definition of solving a dispute. <laughs> Inherent in a deterrent value is saying that it's an appropriate way. No, the, to the dispute is already threat. There's a threat so inherent solving the in using a gun as a deterrent and saying, I will use this gun to harm you. Well, it doesn't sound like you have much experience with, with violent people because a deterrent is, let me explain to you guys, okay? Do I decide to break into that house? No, because I know that I, my odds of, of, you know, facing deadly force okay, is there versus do I break into that house? Yeah, it's an old guy. Don't worry. He can't put up a fight. Okay. So that's the deterrent force. The inappropriate use to settle a dispute is two guys are arguing about something or to your earlier point, a road rage thing or really stupid things like the guy's feet smelled bad and using and settling that with a gun. That's absolutely inappropriate. That's a dispute by slowing down the process, you're going to have fewer people, but they're going to be highly qualified, just like we have with airline pilots, semi-drivers, surgeons, and everything else that we regulate. And when my reading of the Second Amendment, and I'm not a a lawyer of any type, a well-regulated militia. So that the well-regulated didn't say everybody can have everything they want. And they say that the Second Amendment, let the population be armed, was the second thing. And it's not about hunting. They didn't just come back from a hunting trip. Okay. It's so it's we can solve this problem by making sure that the people that shouldn't have firearms don't have them, that we have better services to prevent suicides, that we work inside those communities uh, about giving particularly young men better ways uh, to solve disputes, that we get ahead of uh, the domestic violence issue and and where you and I are in 100% agreement in the entertainment industry, whether it's a um, video game, a television program, a movie, we've got to get them to curb showing a firearm as a way to solve an issue. It sickens me when I watch that because they've never seen the horror of an actual gunshot wound. Just real quick, the UK has the same Hollywood type of culture, same video games we play, no guns. Their homicide per 100,000 is four times lower than ours. It's 1.2 to 4.9. But my question is, taking this to the logical conclusion, from your perspective, more guns in the right hands make people safer. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I said keeping the person that shouldn't have the gun, keeping that person separated from the firearm. That's the problem. The problem is people that shouldn't have it, having that firearm and using it inappropriately. And I think we've drilled through a lot of the reasons that occurs. And to your point about England, England has a lot more home invasions. 
okay, into occupied dwellings because they're not afraid that they're going to be met with a, a real deterrent force. That statistic is out there as well. I mean, that may be true, but I, I think that most sane people value human life over TV. But anyways, just to, I think one of the big problems here that I'm, I've been listening for like 35 minutes it, and what I'm really just not understanding is I, I understand keeping guns out of bad people's hands. I agree that your solution is far better. It's well thought out, um, far better than really most anything, anything I've seen proposed by uh, most politicians. I can't think of one politician that's proposed anything is good, but where I'm struggling it, because I do have a question I want to ask, but I, I need to flesh this out first. If guns in the right people's, if, if guns are a deterrent by hardening an area because a good person has a gun and the bad person knows that the good person has a gun, so they're not going to invade their home, they're not going to commit a crime on a hardened target or they're less likely, the logic behind that would be more guns in good people's hands make people safer. Is that not what you're saying? I don't buy that. If a person chooses not to have a firearm, then you know that's their that's fine. They don't have to do that. And I don't believe that everybody walking around packing or in certain states, and I've seen it, I'm sure you have, you see a dozen people walking down the street with, you know, rifles strapped over their back and a, you know, a semi-automatic on their hip. I don't get that. That's not what I'm saying. I, I'm, I'm, and I'm not advocating. I'm not advocating <laughs> that. Let's arm everybody. I'm just saying, if somebody can demonstrate that they have the knowledge, the skills, the temperament to properly use and store a firearm, they're not. Hurt, they're not going to hurt anybody. And the evidence is 300 million firearms. Most of them out there that aren't doing anything harmful. It's keeping it out of the hands of the people that are using it inappropriately. Well, okay, but you did say, and and this is what's really tripping me up because again, I'm I'm not like John. I don't want to take them all away. You said there are neighborhoods in the United States where folks know that every house in the neighborhood or most houses have guns, and therefore, because folks know that they're hardened targets, there's fewer home invasions next to no home invasions. So that is saying. Using your logic, this is not distorting. This is not political discourse. That's literally quoting you, and we can play it back if we want. Um, and this is why I'm struggling. Like, we're not going to say both sidesism. We're not going to attack the media here. I'm literally using your quote. You just you you said that. So taking that, if one neighborhood is safe because they have guns, and that's a good thing because the guns are inherently a deterrent, like you said, it would stand to reason that the safer neighborhoods have the guns and therefore there's going to be less home invasions or fewer home invasions. Is that not verbatim what you've said? You're, you're really close. Okay. So imagine you're driving down a rural or semi-rural place and you've just held up a 7-Eleven. Okay. And you're trying to figure out where you're going to go next. Okay. You're going to look at every one of the houses on that rural road and you're going to think twice because they may not all have a firearm in them, but there's a chance that they might. That's the level of deterrence. It's not, I'm not trying to paint a picture of, you know, places bristling with firearms and, you know, concertina wire and, and that type of thing. It's, and so the people that don't want to have the firearm, they don't have to have one, but the, 
the the bad elements don't know that they don't have one. Okay, and enough people do that it steers them away. So that's what my life experience is. And people don't advertise whether they've got a firearm in the house, and they sure as hell don't advertise that they don't have one. This is my question that I've been trying to get to. Um, so, and then let's pivot to healthcare or elections or something. So then, okay, your view is guns are inherently a deterrent. And then uh, if a target is hardened or perceived to be hardened because there's a gun in that target, target I use loosely like uh, like a house, for example, house isn't a target, but to a criminal robbing a 7-Eleven and driving away, it may be construed as a target. Would you support arming every single classroom so that the classrooms are hardened and therefore, in your logic, the violence would be reduced and we'd solve school shootings by just giving teachers guns? Absolutely not. That's an insane idea. And I'm and and this is Justin, I want to come back. This is the problem we have with most political discourse. If you don't believe in X, then therefore you must believe Y. Okay. And I don't think a classroom is a good place for a firearm. It is a really bad place for a firearm. So Rich, when you were describing your kind of understanding of which communities in the United States have effective gun-based deterrence and which ones have an ineffective gun-based deterrence. Part of your illustration was describing a rural community as a place that has more effective gun-based deterrence. And this is going back to my point earlier in which I believe, and it sounds like you agree with me, but now I'm not wondering if you do uh, as much as I, I realize, I believe that this is influenced very much by media depiction. When the reality, the factual reality is actually quite different from this. So this is some data from the CDC. This is uh, U.S. government data. Uh, from 2016 to 2020, 13 of the 20 U.S. counties with the most gun homicides per capita, uh, per capita rate, were rural. So 16 or 13 of 20 were rural. Uh, in the year 2020, the total gun death rate for rural communities was 40% higher than it was in large metro areas. So we have this uh, idea of the cultural communities that we believe are using guns correctly. And the idea of cultural environments where guns are being used incorrectly that are based on stereotypes and are based on media depictions of guns. But it's the reality is actually quite different. And I also just want to go back again to this idea. We're talking about a social idea that violence is a correct way to solve a dispute as being a problem when we're also talking about guns being useful deterrents. Built into deterrence is a threat. I mean, Rich, you said yourself that in a situation where someone was in a dispute, um, they could use deadly force, and that's an effective way of deterring it. So essentially what we're saying is that a civilian using deadly force is valid and useful way of dealing with dangers and threats in their environment. And we see by looking at the data that people aren't doing this any more effectively in rural communities. First of all, built-in deterrence is not a threat. If my neighbor has a properly stored firearm or several firearms that are in accessible safes or, you know, that but could be ready in, in an instant as a deterrent, it's not threatening anybody, okay? He's not bothering anybody with it. It's so, so to say that deterrence equates to threat is, quite frankly, nonsense and flies in the face of the dictionary. In terms of the rural statistics, of course, when you look at per capita, there's fewer people out there and that, there are, that there's less law enforcement. So, of course, 
on a per capita basis. But let me give you just like I'm not going to cite Chicago like everybody does. Right. But I would like to see this. My guess would be you've got a very Chicago's course, a lovely city. But there are areas that I'm, I think would be hotter. And that's where the social problems need to get um, addressed. But but let me tell you, I had on my show the uh, former police chief of the city of Detroit, James Craig. Um, and he was in the L.A. Police Department, Cincinnati, I believe, um, and, and he was a, in Detroit. There were uh, home invasions uh, in the southwest part of, of Detroit, a, a largely Hispanic community, and you know, a number of home invaders were shot by homeowners. And the chief said, you know, look, we can't be every place. And so we, you know, like it when homeowners you know, help us in our fight against, you know, people that are coming in their homes to do them harm. So this is a complex issue. And I think to tap it off, it's a a, a very dangerous tool used inappropriately, used by the wrong people, uh, leads to very tragic consequences. Let's address the two-thirds of the firearms deaths that are caused by suicides Let's make sure that the people that get their hands on firearms have demonstrated their ability to use them and store them and that they're observed by trainers and that we can start removing those firearms from people that shouldn't have them. And I agree with that. And I guess here I, I'm in the middle. I I, <laughs> I, I think that uh, Rich's solution is better than anything we've seen. Like I've said, I tend to agree with John's arguments that guns inherently cause more violence. It's not really the political thing here. What I'm trying to do, just trying to find out where people's logic are and what we're taking. But this was a great discussion on guns. Thank you for listening to this conversation. Our next episode will feature James Pindell, political reporter for the Boston Globe. Mr. Pindell has two decades of experience covering the politics of New Hampshire host of several competitive races in the 2022 election cycle, and also home state of both PM 101 hosts. We encourage you to subscribe and rate our podcast if you've enjoyed these discussions.